Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am Greg Bendian, your host, where we get into some deep shop talk about music and the creative process once a week. And today I'm really pleased to have an old friend join me. She is a harpist, a composer, an improviser, educator, activist. We've known each other since the late 80s on the New York City downtown scene and uh, saw her most recently in, in 2013 when I recorded her oral history for the Yale Oral History of American Music. And I am so pleased to have here, here with me to chat and catch up and, and get into all sorts of stuff. Anne LeBaron. Hi, Anne. Hey, Greg. It's great to see you again. Yay. So great that you could do this. Thank you. It's an honor to be a part of your project. And uh, we have a little bit of time. We can get into some stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right. let's do it. I, you know, Anne, I, I was thinking about it as I uh, approached our time together and wondering, I don't know if I ever heard you talk about that moment where you're, you're a harpist, but you say, I want to do something different with the harp. How did that come about? Oh, yeah. Well, I can tell you um, without hardly thinking about it that this urge to explore the instrument came about when I began playing. Um, and this was at the time that I was learning the instrument, you know, classical technique. But um, maybe two years after I started harp lessons, I got involved with a group of musicians in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that would we would all meet every week. I would haul the harp in my beat-up station wagon to LaDonna Smith's house. And we were musicians. Some of us were amateurs. Some were on their way to, you know, a more professional career. Of course, we were so young that we didn't even know. But the great thing was that we came together and we just played. And I, I can tell you that, you know, our um, models, if we didn't even have models at that time. Later, we discovered that in Europe, people like Derek Bailey and, you know, Evan Parker were performing uh, free, free improv. And but that's what we were doing without even having that knowledge. Now, you know, we were familiar with um improv as it uh, unfolded in this country with with uh, great musicians like John Coltrane, for instance. But, but we were just playing together. And so what spurred me on to uh, explore the harp was playing with, with fantastic musicians like Davy Williams, who was at some point, I don't know if he was doing it then, but preparing his guitar or playing it with electric baseball mitts and, you know, pretty mm -hmm. crazy stuff, right? Yeah. And LaDonna Smith, who, who was playing her viola and singing at the same time. And then we had rank amateurs who sometimes would get annoying because they would play the same thing over and over. But still, it gave a kind of buzz of anything goes. So it made me curious, well, what can the heart do? And I was very open to using found objects on the instrument. So one of my first found objects was 
a screen door spring that was lying on the sidewalk, um, probably nearby this house where we were performing in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I just picked it up. I don't know. I mean, why would you pick up, you know, a spring this wide along? But I picked it up and I discovered that it was so tightly wound that I could drag it across a string and it would be like a textured bow. I still have it. I play with it and I've written for it. Um, another thing that I, I wondered at that time was, well, the harp is such a percussive instrument, such a non-sustaining instrument. What if I bowed it, you know? And I had at the time some little instruments like psaltery and things like that. So I had a psaltery bow and you could bow a psaltery string, you know, I tried that bow. It didn't amount to much, but then I tried other bows and I still bow the instrument. And I discovered I could bow it with three bows at once if I wanted to. So those kinds of things and, and just preparing it, this was before any of us knew about the cage prepared piano pieces. I mean, it was the deep South, you know, in, in the very early part of the seventies. So we didn't know that, but I stuck alligator clips on the strings just to see what would happen. And I think this was all inspired by anything goes with this group of people. It was not an academic um, setting. And it may have been more the mid seventies now that I think about it, because I started, I started learning the harp in the early seventies, but in the mid seventies, yes, we would do these uh, kinds of, um, uh, we weren't giving concerts. We were just, it would be like, you know, coming together for a poetry reading every week. But instead of that, we simply played together. So that's, that's where I got these ideas. And that's interesting to me because I didn't come up with the idea of prepared drum set until after I had heard the cage prepared piano stuff and had studied prepared piano with Paul Hoffman at Rutgers and coming up with that out, you know, sort of what do you, what would you call it, in a vacuum as you did? I mean, yeah. I didn't realize this is going on in Alabama. Mm -hmm. That's something. You, you know, there's a film out now. It's a documentary and it's called Ice Pick to the Moon. And it's really focused on the Reverend Fred Lane, AKA Tim Reed. Um, and the Rodellinus group. Well, the Rodellinus group was basically this group of people I've been talking about who were playing together, but it expanded to visual artists and, you know, it, it was a kind of tribe. I've written about it because uh, I gave a keynote and I, I have a, a published article. But in fact, yesterday, uh, yeah, my published, it's called Post-Truth Surrealism. And then it's uh, Redellinus, the Reverend Fred Lane, and LSD, uh, Huxley's Last Trip, which is an opera I'm working on. But uh, the, so, so Redellinus came out of this. And in fact, just yesterday, I was lecturing to my class um, reflect, musical reflections of surrealism about the class is really predicated on why music wasn't a part of the surrealist movement. Um, 
And so we explore that and I have answers for that. And that's something else I've written and published about. But uh, what I was saying and to the to the students uh, related to what 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 we're talking about right now is I played clips from this film, Ice Pick to the Moon, and one of one of the people who was being interviewed talking about it said, you know, it's just unbelievable that this movement, if you want to call it a movement, it's really not a movement. It was an art collective, but we didn't think of ourselves as an art collective. Is it a scene? Uh, it was our scene. Yeah. It, it was in it was in response to being outsiders in a town that was really all about three things. Football, fraternities and sororities at the university, and religion. And we were outsiders. And so in this film, in Ice Pick to the Moon, one person says, you just can't imagine this would have come out of the deep south of a place like, like Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in the, you know, in the 70s, in the mid-70s. And in this film, there's also footage of we we all formed a band of, um, uh, well, yeah, we formed a group to uh, march in the homecoming parade um, for the University of Alabama in 1973, and we were called the Marching Vegetable Band. And so that's in this film, Ice Pick to the Moon 2. And this gives you a, a real sense, if you see it, it's on YouTube now, the footage. There's no music, but we were playing Don Cherry's March of the Hobbits as we marched along in our vegetable paper mache costumes, I was not in one because I was playing the harp in a little wagon that was being dragged along the street. So I was playing March of the Hobbits with this. And all of the people lining the streets were so delighted. To, you could see on their faces, but we were an anomaly. Yeah. You would never see something like this. It's amazing we even got a permit to march in the parade. So the the story, the outstanding story about this parade with all the vegetables and fruit, we had a banana <laughs> marching along, is that we had climbed a hill and the person who was dragging my harp along um, in the wagon, it was me and the harp, so it was kind of heavy, was my boyfriend. And he said, I can't do this any longer. Um, we've got to make a stop. And at that time we were passing a house that, that two people in our band lived in. So we all trudged up the hill and went into the house. It turns out the landlady for this house was sitting on her porch next to it with her friends and was mortified that these vegetables were going in the house she owned next door. It wasn't too long after that that the people who lived there who were part of our band got evicted and then the house itself was raised, burned to the ground or destroyed. It didn't burn. It didn't accidentally burn. She had it. This woman had it demolished because of her, her embarrassment was so great. <laughs> and that's all. You can see that also in the YouTube Video. You can see that in the YouTube? Well, not it being demolished, but you can see us going trudging up the hill, going into the house. Oh, I would love to see that. Yeah, 
it, it fascinates me when, when, you know, even in New Jersey, when I was growing up, you find a circle of people to do what you want to do, to do what you need to do. And in high school, that was the high school band that I had, which was called Modern Art. Mm -hmm. And it was multi-genre, including free, cornet tunes, Zappa stuff, original compositions, structures. And it's sort of like your your training ground. Well, and, there, yeah. You know, and just the idea that um, you don't necessarily have anybody telling you what you can or can't do. It's a very important moment because also as a young person, you're forming, you're becoming who you're going to be. And to have had that amount of freedom with support of a group of peers, like-minded peers of varying levels of talent, obviously, but still, um, that's an amazing time. And I, I still cherish that time. Uh, and and in, in many ways, I still try to live there in my mind. Well, that's, that's, I mean, clearly you have insight into what I'm talking about because you lived it too. And it's wonderful to hear your, your perspective on, you know, why that is something that we never forget and why that experience forged us as musicians and individuals today, who we are. You know, it, it makes me, I don't know how you found your group, but it makes me go back to wonder, well, how did I get involved? Who did I know? And it turns out that LaDonna Smith was a teaching assistant. She was a couple of years older than I am um, at the University of Alabama. So I knew her from the music department there, even though I wasn't, I, I was in new college, which let me do anything I wanted to. And I decided, well, I wanted to do music, but on my own terms, you know, so that's why I never enrolled in the music school. But there she was, LaDonna Smith, and then Davy Williams, they were not a couple, they became a couple, but Davy Williams at the time was, had dated my sister, my little sister Lynn. So, so I had, that's how I met both of them. And in fact, I introduced Davy and LaDonna to one another. And they eventually became a duo that um, they toured Europe and they were really the core of this group of improvisers. And remains a core for many years uh, and a force. I have very fond memories, Anne, of playing in a trio with you and LaDonna Smith. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. LaDonna is irrepressible. She's great. And I played with her with Derek in, in London. Um, I, I know you and I played with Davy Williams in your Phantom Orchestra. Group. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Davy's no longer with us, but, but he was just an incredible force on the guitar. I, um, I definitely want to talk about them more, but but there's some, something that that we have in common is after that sort of period of of local development, the first thing that I really did after I came out of that was to play with Derek Bailey. And I feel like you played with Derek within a year of when I first played with Derek 
how did that come about for you? Yeah, I, as I remember playing with Derek, um, well, what I remember most readily is that he invited me to come to London and to play with, you know, the group he would bring together every year. Company. Company, yeah. So that was probably in the um, early to mid 80s, I'm thinking. It's like 80 two or 83 for you and i know it was 80 fall of 83 for me i was just because I, I was looking at your your website yeah um but how did he know about you oh through through these uh through this network of davy and ladonna and i had been in europe i had lived there um and perform i i just read i was there as a fulbright scholar and the fulbright people sent my harp over but then they they refused to bring it back to the US so I had to sell it. <laughs> they didn't know how much how expensive it was to bring it over. It was a uh, I just, you know, I mean really. But at any rate, I w I was there uh and I reached out to people. I reached out to a guy named Paul Litton. I don't know, yeah. Percussionist. Percussionist, yeah. right? And to some of the British um improvisers certainly to um P Peter Kovalt who was German bass player, right? I just at that time, you wrote to people. So I wrote. I said, I'm here. I'm an improviser on the harp. And they got back to me. Yeah. And so through those channels, I think Derek heard about me. And certainly through the um, Alabama, you know, channels of Davy and LaDonna, who were more or less the spokespeople of, of what we were doing. And they also created a scene in Alabama that allowed, somehow they raised funds or did whatever they needed to do to bring people there. So people would come, musicians would come, um, free improvisers to the US and do a little tour and probably think, well, I've never seen the deep south and here I can go and play. Probably didn't pay much, but, um, but they had people passing through all the time. At that time, they had relocated to Birmingham. So, you know, Tuscaloosa was, came before, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's how Derek knew about me through these various different channels. He was always looking for people that were going to bring something different to the music. And yeah. I know he was really happy that I played vibraphone. They didn't really have vibraphonists in improvised music besides I'm Gunter Hampel and, you know, a handful of people. That's right. Gunter Hampel. Sure. Yes. Who was doing it in this country, you know? And in the U.S., I think of um, up in Woodstock, Dr. Uh, you'll know who I'm talking about. Carl Berger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Berger, right, right. Carl right. Berger, definitely. Carl um, Berger. Bobby Naughton, uh, Bobby Hutcherson, I, I think yes. of from, the, from, the, yes. from the black music, but he was also just so experimental and interesting mm -hmm. and you know, there are a lot of ways to, to go with, with tune percussion because there wasn't a lot done. And preparing the vibraphone, uh, extended techniques on the vibraphone, all that stuff comes as a result of the classical thing and the improvised guys. Because the improvised guys, you'd see them doing all sorts of things with clamps and, you know, different putting, or as Monty Python would say, putting things on top of other things. <laughs> The Institute of Putting Things on Top of Other Things was what we did. 
Hey, so, Greg, I got I to ask you, I got to ask you, did you ever prepare your vibes with uh, paper, like woven in between the bars? Oh, yeah. In fact, yeah. Um, you can even get away with, with just having sheets of paper because then they can come off quickly. But yes. the sheets of paper and then you get wonderful attack and uh, sort of bizarre. I always feel like it's a little splashy kind of sound. It's such a fun thing. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. look, it's every it's every thing that you can put in, in terms of like foil, paper, wax paper, whatever. you try everything. And little clips in between the bars. Oh, big, yeah. well, big clamps, definitely on, on some mm -hmm. of the lower two. And, uh, and I have solo pieces for that. In fact, when I went over for, for Derek's big company event in 88, the summer at the uh, ICA in London, it was like 28 improvisers. It was the biggest international one he had done. Mm. And he insisted that I play vibraphone, which was interesting to me. So he rented the, he paid for the rental of the vibraphone. And it was the first time that I had started putting clamps on the keys to outline certain dead notes and have ring notes, you know? Um, and that was the first thing I did was everyone played solo and then everyone got to, to play in whatever grouping they wanted. You know how company works. And, yes. uh, <laughs> and I played, that was when the first time I played prepared vibraphone was in with uh, London and with Derek and, and Kovald was on that one as oh, well. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. It was a really cool, a really cool uh, aggregation of people. LaDonna, mm -hmm. um, Dennis Palmer, from, oh yeah, sure. Uh, Tennessee, from Chatt uh -huh, Chattanooga, yeah. Jake so, and Ray Levy's. <laughs> yes, and, and yeah. So being part of that world was a big part of my early life. And in fact, I got the Cecil Taylor gig because Cecil heard me with Derek. Whoa! And Cecil Man. was in that that summer. Cecil was hmm. going to Europe to play with the FMP guys. If you remember, he had that residency. Yes. And he played with Evan and he played with different people, but he played with Derek duo and he'd never heard. I mean, this is the, I, I don't mind telling people this. He had no idea who Derek Bailey was. So I was hanging out with Cecil that year, the year before I got the gig and just hanging out. And, and he said, uh, I'm going to, to Europe to play with this guy, Derek Bailey. I said, Oh, cool. He's great. Do you know his stuff? He said, no, I don't know anything. So I played him a tape of me and Derek playing together. And he he flipped out on it. He said, oh, I've never heard anybody change textures so quickly and all. You know, like, you really got it right away. Of course. And then uh, he went over to play with Derek and it, it went well. It went better sort of as they did it a couple of years later at Tonic. They, they, see, Derek didn't want to tune to the piano. When he finally tuned to the piano when, at the tonic gig, all of a sudden it was just, I don't know, it was just so much better. But that's exactly, <laughs> oh man, don't get me started on Derek because he was such a character. I remember one time we were playing in Chicago and I said, before we're tuned, you know, getting ready, I said, Derek, do you want my A? Do you want, do you want my vibraphone notes? He said, no, I don't want it to sound like Christmas bells. <laughs> <laughs> right so you say nothing's nothing's off the table he's not even going to always want to be in tune with you 
pitch yeah. wise. Yeah. So start yeah. dealing on that that level. Well, you know what? This is so timely. Yesterday I was playing, or I had assigned rather, uh, to my surrealism and music class um, a, a clip, several clips of Derek playing and some of his writing. But one of them was an early clip. With, no, it was an early recording. And somehow it, it just, I think, recently was uploaded to YouTube. But Anthony Braxton is playing on two of the tracks of this recording. Let me see if I can tell you what it, uh, yeah, it's called Fairly Early with Postscripts. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so you can hear Braxton in the back, you know, with, with it's mostly solo, but that's, that's really, I think, substantial, especially after what you're telling me about Cecil Taylor not having heard of him until 1988 more or less. That's true. It was 88. Well, we were diggers. I mean, we were we were looking for the stuff that was weird and we had some distribution. So in New Jersey, you could go to a record store and a guy would have, quote, imports. So we could get Music Improvisation Company, which is the first I think that I had heard of Derek because it's Derek Evan, mm -hmm. Jamie Muir, you Davies on electron live electronics, um, Christine Jeffrey, I think. Yes. And it's complete wall of noise kind of stuff. It's like ebb and flows and you can tell, you can't tell who anybody is. So I guess that sort of busts your, your, you know, cherry at that point to just say, Oh, you can do complete noise. We can go complete noise. Oh, we don't have to tune. Oh, now, Obviously, these are pick and choose things for your future, but those experiences where you meet a guy who says, no, I don't want to tune to you. It it kind of prepares you, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. You know, when you're so innocent, you come across something like this. And it, it also, this anecdote reminds me of how we were so thrilled to discover that people were doing the kind of music we had been engaging in um, across the ocean when I guess their distribution was pretty good because we were getting their recordings at record shops in Tuscaloosa. That is amazing. And that is how we discovered, oh, there are other people doing what we're doing. And even when we were, um, even when we put on the uh, Rodellinus Pataphysical Review, which was a, a kind of notorious uh, event that became a recording with three three different pressings, we had one of the one of one of the um, parts of our show was something called Captains of Industry, where we all got on stage and we played appliances, shavers, television sets. It was nothing but noise. Had we heard of John Cage? Had we heard of these improvisers in Europe? No, we were complete uh, innocents. But because we were part of this group, which is in retrospect called an art collective, but we were just friends hanging out and doing kind of radical things that were against everything else in this town. Um, we just decided to do it. And like you say, Greg, you know, nobody told us we couldn't. That's huge. Right? It's huge. I you mean, know, we I... knew it would alienate our audience. We knew that. And in fact, they left in droves. 
when we were performing it. But we were prepared because we had these two big speakers facing the audience. And after everything, every number we played, which included covers, really ragged covers of things like Volari and Chicago and these tunes, we would, we would blast applause into the audience. And that made even more of them leave. I can't believe you guys were that subversive at that time in the Deep South. It just blows my mind. It's how we survived. You know? Yes, I do. I wish we had been more diverse. And certainly, you know, we would have accepted anyone who came into our group. But uh, that's the way it was. Then it was still kind of, you know, separated. Although in the parade, uh, I was just mentioning, because I, I just showed this yesterday. So it's really fresh in my mind to my students. Um, I, we were sitting there, you know, when you get ready to go in a parade, you have a staging area. And so right behind us was this um, African-American regiment. I don't know if it was ROTC or what it was, but they looked so sharp. They were in their berets. They were like uh, all dressed up in uniforms. And there I was with my little troubadour harp uh, sitting in this, you know, sitting behind it in this wagon. And they all came up with their white gloves and everything. And they were, they had never seen a harp before. So that's really precious to see um, this group of guys, you know, coming up and exploring the harp. On the other hand, if you watch all 13 or 15 minutes of this, you will see one thing that is especially despicable, but it was accepted at that time, not that it should have been. And this is a fraternity all in blackface marching in the parade. Yeah, it stands out because they're mugging for the camera and clearly they're in blackface. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these these documents, uh, they don't lie. Ha! You say that again. <laughs> <laughs> when you say, listen, I have the footage. <laughs> Watch well, out. Yes. yes. And how, how did we start playing together? Do you remember? Um, well, I know you were an indispensable part of my band that I call it. You know, I wish that band had lasted longer. Uh, but I think we all moved in different directions geographically. And how did I meet you before then? Did you seek me out? Did I seek you out? I think your memory is better than mine, Greg. So, Yeah, I, that's why I'm asking because I'm blanking on it. But I know that we played duo before your band. So yes. we did duet yeah. concerts at various New York downtown spaces. We played at Roulette yeah. as a trio with LaDonna. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We played other places as a trio with LaDonna. Oh, by the way, I have some of those recordings in my archive. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. I got, I'll figure out uh, what we'll do with those. But, uh, and then I remember uh, the, the, the band, the Anne LeBaron Quintet, very well because it's the first time I played with Davey Williams. It's the first time I played with uh, Marcus Rojas on tuba and the first time I played with Frank London on trumpet. So you had a really interesting band there. And I think that that record 
Phantom Orchestra is a very interesting record. In fact, I have it right here. Ah, yeah. Look at that. Yes. So, you know, the, and, and it was that your approach to the, to the group was a very interesting blend of improvised parts and composed parts. And that's one of the things that I find interesting about working with different composers slash improvisers, because we all have, Hal Galper calls it, different percentages, different levels of control. So what was your approach with the, the Phantom Orchestra? I think it's always, well, because I had played with these different individuals, including yourself, in different formats and um, various, you know, you know, situations, I, I really loved every musician in the group. And I was so absolutely thrilled to have everyone together to write for. This is something, yeah, I was just moved to do it. And it was as much about playing with the individual as it was about the instrumentation. Although, you know, these are some of my absolute favorite instruments, but besides that, absolute favorite musicians uh, as well. You know, I mean, Greg, you could have been, you know, you, you could have been an oboe player and it wouldn't have mattered to me. I'd still want you on the gig, on the recording, right? So... Mm -hmm. So that was really important. And then uh, trying to create music for, I'd never composed music like this before. You know, I was f certainly from the academic world of you write everything down um, precisely. And I, I, I was experimental in a way with this because of how I worked, especially when I wasn't in an academic institution. That's when I got really experimental with my composing. But uh, it was a matter of trying things out. So I would come up with ideas, write those down, and then like a chart, you know, you would then have a, a, a solo. But instead of solos, I think we would just have free moments of freedom. Uh, so you would kind of like have the, you know, have the tune and then go into free mode. And because this was such a gifted and talented group, I didn't want everything we recorded to be my composition. I wanted us to do some things that were absolutely, you know, open with each other. And later I gave these things names that came out of Tristan Zara's poetry. Um, it was a great Dada and then became surrealist poet. So that's how I, uh, I was just imagining, you know, music for the group and I would write things and I would actually work from my heart so that I could do things with the written music that was indicative of how, how I improvised. Um, but it's just like, you know, this was my little, uh, my little experience of a situation like Duke Ellington lived his life knowing his musicians and writing for them. Uh, so I got a tiny, tiny taste of what that was like. And I suspect had I not become a mother that I would have kept things going. But it was just really hard after, you know, that um, change in my life 
to be able to travel some, but, but at least we played. We played some live gigs. We played at Merkin Hall and, uh, you know, on various series. Uh, we never made it across the ocean, which makes me kind of sad, but it was hard to tour with anything larger than a trio, as I recall, you know. Yeah, it was a very cool group. The record is really cool, and it was recorded 30 years ago. Imagine that. I can't. Yeah. I won't. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> it was definitely a snapshot in time. And you know what also I want to share with you is where do you remember those gorgeous studios we recorded in? The BMG studios with yeah. top-notch engineer. It would everywhere. That was the last, I think it was the, it may have been the last recording before that studio was turned into a bank. So well, sad. It, the IRS uh, foreclosed on the company that owned that building. And and a, a lot of those studios were torn apart for a scrap wood. Huh. It was RCA Studios. In fact, we were recording. I should say, I remember this because I recommended the studio to you. It was the team that, and the studio that did Inflorescence, the Cecil record. They yeah. did Definite Pitch, my first solo record. They did a, a Bratzman record. I did like four or five records because it was Joe Lopes, the engineer, and Jay Newland, the engineer, who were so cool that they would get us in at like odd hours for very little money. Otherwise, it was one of those really expensive Toscanini studios. That's right. That's right. It was cavernous. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, thank you again for that. But I don't know why you're saying RCA. I thought it was BMG. It was, it changed to BMG later. It might, I'm trying to think if it was BMG. Oh, it just had become BMG. But it was RCA when I did the Cecil record. Okay. And, I see. and that yeah. was 89. So this is 91. Mm -hmm. So it had recently changed. And yeah, it's a really good sounding record because Joe Lopes and Jay Newland are the best. Jay Newland, yes. Yes, I worked with him on the editing and mixing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I mean, I wish we had been able to continue, but isn't that the nature of this business is that, you know, things. Yeah, you never, you never really know if something is going to, to be able to be sustainable. Um, you know, you mentioned your titles, and I wanted to, to query you about one of them, because I think you and I are both horror movie buffs. You like horror movies? I like horror movies if they're not slasher. I don't yes. like, yeah. Okay, so is it true that your, your, the improvised piece that you called Human Vapor is, is a horror movie reference? No. Because no. you know that's a horror movie. No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Well, you can't, you know, you're trying to think of all these different ways to scare people. Well, you know, he turns into a werewolf. He turns into a lizard. This guy turns into vapor. Whoa. And, and I'll, I'll send oh, you God. the trail. There's got to be a trailer somewhere. Please. And it's literally the human vapor. <laughs> now I have to go back into my Tristan Zara poetry and find the, uh, find the reference for that. In fact, I wonder if if that was a reference to the, to the Zara. Because the movie, it would have been a '40s or '50s movie, you know, a B, B or C horror movie. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you might have that idea, actually, when you look at the cover of the recording, which these are kind of skeleton monsters. They are. Yeah. And this is by a woman. Her name is Miriam Bierman, a painter, who I met at the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. And there was something in her work that just resonated with me. Um, and I got permission. She sent me slides of everything she had done. I mean, she's a museum collector. Uh, uh, you know, she museums collect her work. And a few years ago, uh, she went into an assisted living home and her son wrote to me and said, are you interested in purchasing this painting? Which I couldn't afford it. I just couldn't. But I'm wondering now where how she's doing and now that we're talking about it and and where that painting is. That's mm, a really I, cool I, painting. Yeah, it's really cool, but then you have you ask yourself, do I want to live with it? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I happen to know one of your stories about haunted paintings. Oh, you do. You told it to me. Do you oh yes. What happened to you in Vienna? Oh yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to mm -hmm. tell that story? You, you can know, say no. <laughs> I, I just don't want to come across sounding like a Looney Tune well, here. But. Then let me let me flip it a little bit and ask you this: You're the person I wanted to ask. Is there a connection between surrealism and the occult? Yeah. I would say I don't know, but probably. <laughs> probably there is. I I try to avoid the occult. I think it's definitely something that is part of our world and we have enough um to uh uh you know we we have have enough negative energy anyway and to me that's something that i just don't care to get close to but there are things that have been written about um surrealism i mean there are books you can find you know surrealism and the occult and uh, so, yeah, I think that if you wanted to go in that direction, you could. And there is a kind of portal through. Um, but I'm happy to tell the story. It's a good story. And Please. it did happen to me. Uh, it did happen to me. So <laughs> it's basically about a studio in, um, that people were renting out as an apartment in Vienna, and I was there um, on a, a creative leave or a, a sabbatical. I was didn't have to work for a semester. Why did I choose to go to Vienna? Because my daughter was there. Uh, as a high schooler, she was an exchange student, and she was living with her exchange sister. Her exchange sister had lived with us. So I thought, well, why not just go and live in Vienna and be near her, you know? And at that time in my life, I was very vulnerable personally. So I think part of what happened to me, uh, and I do believe this, I do believe that there can't, that spirits are there to take advantage of people who um, maybe are, are not, you know, who, who have uh, some vulnerabilities or who are going through things. 
so yeah, I, I moved into this beautiful um, painter's studio, which had a kitchen and a, a bed and I could sleep in it. And it was something that I knew about from the musician world, from a, a friend of a cellist who was married to a painter, an older painter who had this place in the heart of Vienna. And after being there um, for some time, my daughter had come and she looked into one room, which was the place where the painter kept all of his paintbrushes and turpentines and his paints. And it was this dark room. It smelled of turpentine. And she said, Mom, she said, there's something really scary about that room. I don't want to go in it ever again. So I remembered that. Um, and so that was that. We just kept the door shut, but I was living there alone. Um, and then one night, I slept on a bed. It was on the bed was on the floor, and there was a painting next to the bed. Uh, it was more of a construction than a painting. It was dark red, and I started dreaming about it. And um, I can't remember now. I took photos of everything I'm going to tell you, but if if the if this was actually true of the painting or it was in my dream, at any rate, the painting had uh, it was kind of like a collage with newsprint, and it was the story, the collage story of a woman who had been murdered. So there was something very dark about the painting, and then I noticed the painting seemed to change slightly every day and I just decided I don't want that thing next to me so I phoned the owner of the paint the painter uh, the artist and I said would you mind if I remove it it's disturbing my sleep he said no go right ahead I'll bring another one for you <laughs> and he dropped off a new painting this one was a a painting on a white background, it was abstract, greens and blues lines, you know. So I put that where this one was, and I put this one in the place, um, in, in his storage room that was not to be gone into. And the new painting started to change, alter. It could have been my imagination, but at that point, I was telling my friends something is wrong. And one friend said, call a psychic, have a psychic come in and clear the space. So in fact, I did, but I spoke to a Catholic priest who was in America about it. And people were giving me numbers and names and, you know, so I thought, why not? I love the apartment and I don't want to be bothered like this. I was really kind of angry. So I called the Catholic priest and he cleared the space for me. And then the next day, I called a psychic in Vienna. She said, I'll be over in a day or two. You know, we set the date. She shows up and it's this younger woman. I expected a, a someone with a lot of experience, but a younger woman, goth, like not like any psychic I could ever imagine. But she came in and we talked it through all in German. So I'm sure I missed some of what she was telling me. But the essence is this. She said, this building is an old monastery. And she said, when I came up the stairs, I felt spirits everywhere. Mm. And then she said, I'm going into this 
other room where I think I, you know, I can contact them and you stay here. So I stayed out of what she was doing. She took her salts and whatever else she had in her toolkit. And it was very quiet. And when she came back, she told me that she had discovered two entities in this um in this apartment one was a 14th century a duel someone who fought in a duel in the 14th century and never realized he had been killed and the other person was a priest but the priest was terribly abusive um not not a good spirit at all and she said but don't worry about it i got rid of them for you all right that night i went to sleep i thought finally you know woke up and my hand was across the knuckles here it looked burned it was a dark color and it was kind of, kind of felt like a burn and i thought oh that's probably from being at the computer. So I went out and I bought something to rest my wrists on. I don't know why I thought that, but because it wasn't, you know, mechanical, it was a, a burn. And then I, I, it slowly dawned on me that this is a very unusual injury. I called the psychic again. I said, what is going on? And she said, oh dear. She said, and oh, and I told her I spoke, I had spoken to a Catholic priest before. She said, well, what happened, I'm afraid, is that when I came in and thought I had gotten rid of them, I actually called them back because you, you never have one psychic get rid of them and then another one get rid of them, you know. So she had accidentally called them back. And at that point, I decided I can't sleep here anymore. But I loved working there during the day, and at night I would go to a really bad part of town, you know, a part of town where prostitutes and so forth, just a sleazy part, because another friend had a place I could sleep. So I would mm -hmm. go there, sleep, and then come back and work in the apartment during the day. And finally, I couldn't even work there. So my last month, I found another place on the edge of town, and I moved. Uh, the mother of of where my daughter was staying, you know, the, of the exchange mother, said, you've got to get out of there. Um, so I did. And I came back to clean the monastery apartment after I moved. And then when I went back to the new place, I discovered there were little drops of something going all the way up to the entrance of my new place and then inside the entrance. And these little drops looked like maybe, you know, they were, um, I don't know, something sweet that was icy. But each one had a little green thing in it, like a plant or a leaf. I called the psychic again. I said, did something follow me to my new place? And she said, no. She said, that's a new energy that is there. And I thought that's all I need, right? But whatever it was, it left me alone after that. So this was my experience at the same time I was writing um, 
a little opera called Suction about a vacuum cleaner and um and I'll I'll never forget it. You know, I don't know what was going on, but uh I I can say I've never experienced anything like that. And and if it if it all happened, I I've still been afraid to go back. We're talking 12 years ago now. I've been afraid to go back and look at the photos. I just don't want to evoke anything. I understand. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I've certainly had some weird experiences myself. Um, as a composer, do you feel as though you're a surrealist? Um, hmm. Not really. I, I don't. I feel that my experience of surrealism is more embedded in group activities. I, I think as a composer, I just, it's so technical, you know, so many things are like now I'm I'm preparing parts for another opera scene. Um, this opera is not the LSD opera. It's one about karma. And it's just, you know, you just have to have a, sort of a mind like a trap. So it's, it's, it's kind of opposite of a lot of, a lot of things having to do with um, composing. Kind and I, I don't mean to, to, to stick you with an ist or an ism. I was just curious if, because I, at the very least, I'm a huge, huge fan of surrealist art. And surrealism, dream state, these sorts of things have, have really peppered my, my output and colored a lot of what I'm trying yeah. to do, I think. Um, because I think the rational only gets us so far. And then there's some stuff that's, you know, we're just talking about this experience you had. There's a, some irrational thing that goes on that maybe isn't something we're in control of. Well, you know, now that I think about it, Greg, in fact, the scene I'm talking about is has very strong surrealist elements. But it comes, it, it's, it's grounded in a, a Japanese no play. And... Some of many of those plays uh, are populated with spirits, and in fact, this one, this opera, is seven of those plays. But they're they've been updated, and they take place all over the world, so it's not like going back to and reliving it. And in this one, uh, two people, one person is uh, possessed by a demon. He kills himself. He comes back as a demon, and he merges with a younger man and they both become they merge and they become a demon that attacks uh a princess so yeah it's and and she's a bad princess <laughs> so yeah there are definitely surrealist elements in that kind of blending it's not logical at all it's very fantastical uh, but you know this is one of those things that these surrealists when they came into um 
when when they forged their movement, of course, they didn't know about so many things that are also surreal. And and these no plays have been around for centuries. So I had an amazing experience a few years ago. Uh, my friend Peter Sellers, the director, was directing a Kaya Sarajo piece based on Japanese. Oh, yeah, I know that. You know the piece? Yes. Only the Sound Remains? Mm -hmm. Incredible. I know of it. I've never seen it. Oh, yeah. Well, there's there's a video uh, DVD of it, but it's not wasn't the same, really, because it was in surround design. She had a wonderful, uh, incredible sound design person. The lighting was mostly shadow. It was shadow and light the whole time. Very simple setup. And just uh, based on two ghost stories from Japan. And uh, I'll just recommend that to you because it's a, it's a really cool piece. And Kaya Sarajo, wow. You know, just one of the elder states people of the music. Yes, I, I knew Kaya. We met in Darmstadt in 1980. So I knew her as a very serious young woman not well, you know, and we both share a dear friend, the uh, flute player, Camilla Hoitanga, who is Kaya's go-to flute. In fact, she's written her, her flute concerto for Camilla. And Camilla is a, a, a really close friend of mine from those days as, as well. So, yeah. I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned the, the European scene for the the composition end of things. Did you have contact with Ligeti? I studied with him. Yeah. I mean, I was in his class during my Fulbright year. So How was I, that? I would travel to um, Hamburg and he held his class. It was, it was his students in his home. And we would all show what we're working on. It was multilingual. But just to be around him and to hear about what was exciting to him at that time, he was smitten with Nankaro's music. And also with someone had, one of his students had introduced him to uh, the pygmy musicians in Africa uh, where they lived. Um, so he was also, you know, that was, that was very much a part of what he was exploring mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal just to be in in his world. I very much wanted to go back and extend my studies with him and he invited me to do that, but it it just I couldn't make it happen. It was the financial situation. I'm sure people would love to know if if you can recall any of his you know comments or critiques of people's work or your work. Well, yeah, I can tell you that when I um, when I was applying to study with uh, to, to to go to to the Fulbright Commission, I had been writing to composers in Europe. I wrote to, uh, you know, to explore because evidently, if you got letters from composers, then who said yes, you can come and study with me, then your chances of winning a Fulbright were greater. So I had written to Erhard Karkoschka in Stuttgart, 
to Helmut Lachenmann. This is before Lachenmann was well known, and I believe it was Frankfurt, uh, to Maurizio Kagel in Cologne, and to Georgi Ligeti um, in Hamburg. And they all answered back except for Ligeti, and he's the one, Ligeti was the one I really wanted to study with because I knew his music as an undergraduate at the University of Alabama. One of my teachers who happened to have graduated from USC, so he came from elsewhere and he knew some things about what was happening in contemporary music. He introduced Luke Saiterna to us. And from that day on, I thought, oh, you know, I didn't even think about the possibility that I could study with uh, Ligeti, but so he didn't write back to me. And so meanwhile, uh, the Fulbright Commission assigned me to uh, live in Cologne and to study with, with Maurizio Cagle. Okay. And before I moved to Cologne, I, I went to Stuttgart, uh, I'm sorry, to Darmstadt um, to take part in the Darmstadt courses in the summer. And then I moved to Freiburg to study in at the Goethe Institute, or maybe it was the reverse, I forget. But anyway, at any rate, in Darmstadt, I met a composer who said, well, I'm in Ligeti's class and I'm moving to Cologne and maybe I can get you in. So I kept in touch with my friend, uh, composer Denis Bouillon, and Denis got started with Ligeti and then said, okay, it's time. Ligeti said, yes, he'll look at your music. And I said, here's this gigantic piece I just finished for percussion quartet with 75 instruments, you know, very complex. And it had just been premiered in New York at Carnegie Recital Hall to a very good review. So I thought, this is the piece to send. Very proud of it. And my friend said, you know, I think he might be more interested in your concerto for active frogs which was a graphic score with um, frogs in it on a tape and human voices and instruments um, who were cued in and out basically and kind of told a little bit about how they might interpret. So I said, well, why don't I send both? I sent both through my friend Denis and evidently Ligeti said, yeah, based on this piece, Concerto for Active Frogs, she's in. She can come with you. So there you go. That was <laughs> that tells you a lot, right? It does. It's it's it really does. And I I'm always fascinated by which guys are really in and which guys are like totally open. You know, like hemmed in. It's gotta be serial, it's gotta be uh twelve tone, it's gotta be mathy, or no. you know, guys that appreciate concept. He was none of those things. Uh, in his lessons, he really didn't make many comments. He let the students make comments on each other's music. And the students were extremely outspoken. And uh, one of them called my percussion quartet offensive. Why? I've never figured it out. Although it was based in a poem about peyote rituals that Antonin Arto wrote. And maybe that was offensive to this. This was a German composer. Um, but Ligeti got so fed up with how rancorous these meetings were 
that he split uh, his students into two groups. And he said, this group will come earlier in the day. This group will come later in the day. It was that contentious? Yes, it was that contentious. Yeah. And, you know, he had kind of set it up like that. But uh, he, he had, this is what you would do if you were presenting your music. He had this table that was kind of low to the floor. And he had this light that hung down. It was... It was like a, almost like a dissecting table. This is a great, you know, the great surrealist saying uh, where an umbrella and a sewing machine meet on a dissecting table, right? This comes from La Tremont. So here was this light and you put your score on the dissecting table. <laughs> and then you, you talk about it. Um, and it was certainly a charged atmosphere. The other thing I'll tell you so yeah, we were split into two, and uh, I would I would travel the five hours from Cologne by car every other week with my friend Denis, and we would go to these quote lessons. And there was one lesson I'll actually never forget. This uh, we went in, and Ligeti said to us, you know, the group in the at whichever part of the afternoon I was in, he said, I have something for you that you may or may not consider to be musical, but I consider it to be musical. He lined us up against the wall on a bench, and then he put this music on, or the tape of what he wanted us to hear. It was about 15 minutes, as I recall, of two people making love on a creaky bed. With the rhythm of the bed, and the vocalizations. And this was a bootleg tape that never made it into the film Black Orpheus because it was so graphic. It was from Black Orpheus? Yeah. Somehow he had a bootleg tape of the soundtrack that never made it into the film. And he was explaining that he found real musical value. To me, it was meaningful um, because I I was, I mean, on a very concrete level, because I was writing an opera at the time about the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, and it gave me the idea to make the train um, more of a an object, and I heard a train where I lived in Cologne every night, so I was thinking that train has to be a part of this opera. And in fact, it became a part of the opera. Um, it was the instead of the ferry getting you to the underworld, the train, because it was set in the Mississippi Delta, the train got people from their usual, when they died, into the underworld. That was your vehicle. Uh, so when Eurydice dies in my opera, she... Um, I have a funeral band, like the New Orleans-style funeral band, emerge, and the train is part of it. I did all of this on the Sinclair post my experience in Europe. Um, and so they all get off, and you see the funeral band, and they wrap her in shroud and put her back on the train. Um, and later in the opera, I have actually a scene called Waltz of the Bed Springs. It's it was very much um, influenced by what Ligeti played for us in that session. And there are bed springs and there are vocalizations 
and they are sampled and constructed into a kind of waltz against the, um, you know, what the, what the singer, what Eurydice is encountering in the underworld. So it's, it's a, a bit scary, I, I'll say. But anyway, that's another story of, you know, how open his mind was to sound. I always wonder what, if, if he could live again, you know, what he would do in our world today with so many possibilities of, of manipulating sound. Yeah, I think about that with Verez. Oh, yes, for sure. He suffered so hard on just trying to get other sounds and limited tape technology. And in some ways, that's a positive, you know, because that that struggle is in there and it, it is a process of, you know, your he, he now things are so easy. And so to forge something, you know, it's a different it's really a different experience. Well, I don't mind saying that the limitations help focus you and the structure is what you don't do and what you don't allow and what can't happen as well as what you do. Well, that's what, yeah, that's kind of what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about your Columbia experience because my teacher for composition was Noel da Costa, African-American violinist, one of the first African-American classical composers to, to exist in academia. Really interesting, open guy. But he was a stu student of Jack Beeson and Otto Looning. Yeah. And, and that he came out doing whatever he wanted to do, Noel also being in a you know very white world of course of that music but he was a fulbright scholar and he studied with dalla piccola wow and nadia boulanger and mm -mm -mm. you know wrote, had an orchestra piece for uh, max roach as a soloist or ron carter as a soloist so the fact that uh you know he came out of that group of with the same group of guys like davidovsky and chow and chung and those guys, didn't you have contact with Davidovsky and, and, and Chow? Oh, yes. I, I studied with all three of them. Yeah. Uh, the one I was closest to in terms of aesthetics and um, just, you know, personally was Cho and Chung. Um, but who was the a student, we should just say. Yes. And, ex, ex, uh, and who was the executor of his uh, estate? Um, and who lived in Verez's apartment, right? He took his oh, apartment yeah. over. Um, but Cho and Chung was so sensitive and thoughtful. And in a way, you know, I enjoyed studying with Mario too, because he had, at the time, he was writing his synchronisms, which were for electronics and one instrument. And so he was hearing uh, music in a way that was quite different, you know, in terms of attack, release, in, in this way that you learn about electronic music. 
Um, and back then it was all analog. You know, there was the Columbia Princeton studio, which I had learned in my um, graduate years at, at Stony Brook, at SUNY Stony Brook, now Stony Brook University. So then I went to Columbia and studied with these three people. And um, my original dissertation, well, first of all, I can tell you that Alan Fort came and I studied with him as well in a class uh, learning set theory. Well, he was the one who put set theory on the map for music. But this is important because it actually became the basis of my dissertation and of a piece I wrote called Tellurus Theorius Sacra based on my own uh, process using set theory in a very different way than Alan, than Alan Fort was teaching it, but it's, it's based in the same mathematics. But before that, I had wanted to write a dissertation on, you know, I told you I was working with the Synclavier at the time. I had access to one. It was not at Columbia. It was at uh, Middlebury College where I had a friend who taught there and who gave me access to the studio. This was early sampling technology. Uh, it was very early. It was at the time of the Fairlight, also Australian synthesizer. These were hybrid synthesizer computers. And I was entranced by what the Synclavier could do that was related to chaos theory, that was related to Mandelbrot sets, uh, a kind of self-similarity. And I was writing my opera about Orpheus and Eurydice, and I was sampling uh, Freddie McDowell's singing of uh, uh, blues. He's one of the masters of, of uh, country blues coming from Mississippi. So I started writing my dissertation about this self-similarity self and these things and that you could do with the Synclavier and how they interacted with my music. And you know what, Greg? These Columbia, the faculty at the time, of course, the faculty is all different now. And this would be allowed to go forth. They, they said, you can't write this. They either couldn't follow it or it wasn't academic enough for them. But I, ha I had to, I had to uh, start all over with another topic. And it was crushing because this was a topic that this was, this kind of writing and composing was very exciting to me. Um, and they couldn't deal with it. So I had to concoct something that they could deal with. And I thought, all right, why not do this kind of symmetrical procession kind of thing that I figured out with actually with someone else who was in the program at the time. So we, we both did, but that person might, he's a dear friend and he never graduated. So I kind of took it and did something with it and wrote a whole book about a methodology that was created. And then I wrote a piece based on that methodology. That's how I did it. So my experience there was, I would say, altogether positive with some uh, obstacles that somehow I got beyond. Yeah. I, when I went into Rutgers, my first, before I got to know all the costume, my first two tryout teachers were Robert Maves, who I'm sure no one has heard of, 
and Charles Warrenin. And Warrenin took one look at a score that I had that had improvisation in it. And, you know, that was pretty much, that would be the end of it. You know, he just said we'd be arguing too much. Well, you know, there you go. I had, I had to uh, live a pretty schizophrenic life in that while I was a student at Columbia, I never, ever brought up my activities as an improviser with any faculty there. These were two very divided lives. Remember how bad that was? It's not, not as bad now, but I remember. Yeah, people called it uptown, downtown. I never really cared for that, but I guess, you know, that had something to do with this kind of uh, refusal to accept. And going back to Liddy, you know, I played my first improvised solo, which was called Doggone Cat Act. It was released on Opus One Records, and it's it's released also on one of my CDs now. And it sounds like a composition, but it was my first solo recorded in a little church at 2 a.m. near Cologne with two other musicians who I often played in trio with. But they said, why don't you take a solo? So I did. And I played it for Ligeti. I played it for the class because... Uh, often composers were interested, like Ligeti also, in what I was doing with the harp. And what what he what one 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 of the student composers found, I had prepared the harp, and so one of the preparations when you would pluck one string, it would sort of rattle. Again. It was like a noisemaker, right? And that was very irritating to that <laughs> composition student. So again, you know, it was derogatory. Oh, that's like well. But Liddy was interested in what I was doing with the harp, and that's why I played this this particular improvisation. I could not have done that at Columbia. And when I left, Greg, I want to make this point. He said to me, Ligeti said, he said, don't go back into a doctoral program. They will crush you. Those were his words. So I considered not doing it. Um, and in fact, I went back, I didn't go back to Columbia. I went back to the PhD program, brand new PhD program at uh, SUNY Stony Brook. And my teacher there, Bulen Terrell, Turkish, he refused to take me back. He called me a tourist composer. Mm. Clearly, he was upset that I had gone and studied with people overseas. So... Then I thought, well, this is a dead end. I'll just go back to Columbia. Um, you know, it was all a matter of finances for me. I, Stony Brook was paying me. And I had a fellowship at Columbia, but the funds had run out. But that's where I ended up, and I'm fine with it, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm very glad that I had contact with those three faculty members. And, and I don't think people realize how uptight the classical contemporary world was in the 80s and how, yeah. you know, you, you did have to keep your lives separate. I mean, I know to this day people don't know that I compose, that I worked with on the improv scene and, and people that, uh, you know, don't know that I improvised just, you know, that know my composing. And 
and that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. But but I think you, like me, you know, we're trying to sort of lace all these things together. And, and our work is ultimately a picture of our personality and our interests and, and our point of view on our experiences. So, you know, Cecil Taylor was really into Bartok and Stravinsky and Carter. Oh, sure. And knew, and knew the Zanaka stuff and toured with Roger Woodward, you know, two solo pianos, half Cecil, half Zanakis. And, and so I was just coming up with guys, I'd say, no, that's the right attitude, not this attitude where, you know, Boulez told me uh, improvisation, we, we dealt with that in the 60s. That's over. So, I, you know, I saw it, I smelled it up close. And it, it wasn't right. It's sort of like that also, that decision of, I want to hang out with the cool people. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, I can hang out with Anne LeBaron because she's not going to, like, stress me for wanting to have everything written down or having everything completely improvised. So, you know, but this is something, like, I feel like we kind of led the charge in that way, too, because now it's more common and, you know, it's more because let's face it in academia you now have to give people options you can't lock your students down i don't think no they wouldn't one. stand for it no not just that but it's not fair to present a world to them that's so tunnel vision for you have possibilities you have other ways of making music that might just as well give you satisfaction and or remuneration yeah all of that emerged out of the past like you say, three decades. Um, absolutely. It's come out of that. And, you know, everything isn't uh, roses at this point. You know, I, I do wish from time to time that, that my students would be more focused and sometimes they're less focused, but that's all part of growing out. You know, that's, that's a part of forging whoever they are going to become as professional. I just think that that's our job is to, to help them to get to themselves. You know, do, do I want my students to try to sound like me? Absolutely not. You know, I don't want my kid to try to sound like me. You know, I think everybody has to find what their set of interests are. And that's hard too. That's the, that's the harder way. Obviously at a certain point we start doing imitation there were, you know, there are periods where I was super into Varez and super into Zanakis and you could tell. But what ultimately, what are you going to do with that 20 years, 30 years down the line if you really loved it? And I think what I'm doing is responding to all the things that I've loved. And Cecil was really inspiring to me because he would say, never be ashamed of your inspirations, never be ashamed of mm. your influences. Yeah, yeah, you were so fortunate to have that. Very few people had that kind of, you know, relationship with with him that I know of, where you had conversations and you were playing with him, and yeah, yeah, it was an incredible, incredible time. Um, it's what I guess sort of put me on the map at first in some ways. He he included two of my solo percussion compositions on his record, which completely unheard of, um, never told me what to play, never told me what not to play. And, and I was 
very keen on bringing some contemporary classical percussion ideas and rhythmic ideas, sound ideas into that music. And I was following Tony Oxley, who had been with him pre just right before, and he had been doing that. So I didn't see any, any reason why you couldn't do that. And he was totally into it. But at the same time, I, I had studied with Steve McCall and Andrew Cyril, and I was interested in those approaches to the drums and to, to rhythm. So in a way, uh, getting crapped on for that in the New York Times or wherever it might be, but having Max Roach notice what I was doing and co complimenting and supporting that, uh, because Max, of course, played with Cecil. Uh, then I knew that the hardcore guys were totally open. I mean, having done like well over 100 interviews with the older cats for the Yale thing, nine out of 10 of them completely comfortable with Bob to free, which is very surprising to me in a way. I'd, going in, I wouldn't have thought that. I mean, guys like Lou Donaldson would really speak poorly of Ornette, those types of guys. But they're, but other than that, you know, uh, completely open to the whole trajectory of different ways of playing and improvising together. And the biggest thing for all those people is spontaneity and surprise. Otherwise, it's just sort of straight ahead jazz and that, and we know what that is. But I, the, the, the heart and soul of a lot of these guys that we admire is that they were going their own way based on their own interests. And Cecil was as into Scriabin as he was into Duke. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a composer who expressed himself in his performance. Yeah. And, you know, interesting about this, too, I connected to you, is Cecil was always, uh, well, certainly at a, at a certain point, becomes very interested in vocalization and piano, and piano and vocalization and recitation and and reciting and moving around the piano and going to the instrument. And this is something that you've been dealing with compositionally, right? How are you approaching the, the speaking pianist? Yeah, well, I had this idea. Um, first of all, I, I, this all came because of a commission with the speaking pianist, a, a commission to uh, not only myself, but to a number of other composers to write a solo piano piece that was grounded in the great novel Pedro Paramo uh, by Juan Rufo, who is widely considered to be the father of magical realism. This is a very important Mexican uh, uh, author and novelist. And so we were all supposed to somehow engage with this novel. And then our piece was to reflect something of the novel. I had the hardest time doing this. I don't know why. But finally, an opening came to me when I realized, well, why not have um, have the performer? Why not? Why not focus the, the piece on one thing in the novel, which was these murmurs that came out of the walls of a haunted town? Uh, it, it, the novel is about a, a young man going back to his ancestral town. And he discovers that it's a ghost town and it is, in fact, full of the spirits who inhabited the town. Okay, so I thought, well, I'm going to charge the performer with doing this, with vocalizing these murmurs. 
So I call the piece Los Murmullos, which means the murmurs. And I took out all of the parts of the novel. Of course, I got permission for this uh, to have the performer uh, vocalize. So the performer is laughing, is moaning, is um, reciting, is singing various things. And then I had the idea, and, and the piece was performed, it's been performed in several countries, and it always gets an enormous reaction, according to the player. Now it's been performed by several other players and recorded a couple of times. But I got the idea to, um, to have a, a kind of, uh, this would be a lifelong project called the Well-Read Clavier, where I write a piece for piano, but it's based in literature. And now I've done three of them. And the most recent is uh, a piece based on um, an Italian writer, Beppo, uh, uh, sorry, Beppe Fenolio, who was a very important writer in the town of Alba in Italy. He wrote about the resistance uh, movement in the war. And he wrote several books about this movement. So I had a commission again from a foundation and a, an Italian pianist, and I did something um, that was parallel, you know, finding things in a particular novella and writing the piece um, based on those. So it's really like, and this one is for actor and pianist. The pianist is speaking. So the, uh, the actor takes on, the actor is actually the partisan. So, and, and then the pianist takes on different personas. The, the pianist isn't asked to act, but there's a lot of playing. Um, both of these are available on videos. I think they're on YouTube now. Um, so yeah, this, this is something that occurred to me to, um, you know, I, uh, to, to think of as a long-term project. But I want to tell you about one other long-term project that I haven't really started yet, but I'm thinking about it. I'm making plans for it. Do you know the book? And this has nothing to do with my well-read clavier. Okay. Do you know the book uh, by Joseph Campbell, uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces? Yes. Kind of an iconic book. I have a couple of copies here, and I was staring at it on my bookshelf one evening, and I thought, well, why does it have to be the hero? Why can't it be, what if you thought about the heroine with 1,000, with a thousand faces? I looked in his book to see, does he address this at all? No. In one chapter, he brings up women, but they are always the muse. They are never the heroine. So I'm forging my way with a piece that will celebrate 1,000 women who are heroines, many of whom are obscure, some of whom are still alive, many of whom are not. And I'm setting up a, a, a process where I will write a short piece on the birthday of the uh, heroine at 
um, you know, who, who has a birthday on that date. And I will do this five days a week. This is going to be my morning. I will write the piece. It will be short. But after three years or so, I'll have a set of 1,000 pieces that can then be, nobody is going to perform all of these, you know, but that can be on a database where they'll have certain characteristics so they can go into various sets. And I'm really excited about it. It connects to social justice um, because, like I said, some of these people are obscure. They've done work that's very important. Um, and maybe they'll be household words, but maybe they won't be. Now, I, I do want to share one other thing with you. I was telling a student of mine the other day, because I'm a trained pianist, I was always afraid of writing for the instrument because of the great literature that it has. And so I avoided doing that until the commission for this piece I told you, just told you about, Los Mamuyas, came my way. And Joan Tower was responsible for that commission. So thank you, Joan, uh, for telling the great pianist, Mexican-American pianist Ana Cervantes to, to um, look me up. So um, writing that piece opened the floodgates. I realized, oh, I love this instrument. And why not write more for it? Now I can do it. I've proven to myself that I can do it, that it will be performed, and that it will mean something. So that's kind of what is behind imagining. And, and why do this, you know, the, the heroine with 1,000 faces for piano? Why not? I think because then I can do it quickly. Like, I can, I can write a piece in a few hours every day. I don't see why not. And, and I love the activism aspect of your work, Anne. Oh, thank you, Greg. You know, it's, um, it's an important part of who you are. And the way that you're doing it is so personal. And obviously, feminist issues are at the forefront, as, as yep. they should be. Um, human rights are women's rights, women's rights are human rights, and this is something that has to be dealt with. Uh, I also noticed that uh, this kind of runs through different areas of your work. So um, Marie Laveau from, from, from opera, uh, in some of your choral works. I mean, so what, what is, what is the, the approach that you give in each of these situations with trying to deal with such a a large and emotional issue. Yeah, I think I'm just naturally drawn um, to to writing about women, uh, you know, in, in terms of a feminist, you know, Pope Joan comes to mind and just being open to these chance meetings. I would not have known about Pope Joan had I not met a poet, again, at one of these retreats for artists, her name is Enid Schomer, and she had written a sestina about Pope Joan. I said, could I please see it? I read this sestina and I thought, and, and she had written it after researching um, how, how, pope, how the only female pope had been covered up by the Catholic Church. At one point, there were 500 citations of the existence of this woman and the Catholic Church covered them up. 
Uh, what so, years? Uh, this would have been in the mid 800s, so the ninth century, where uh, a woman had, according to the citations, had um, obtained an education, which was unheard of then, and had uh, disguised herself as a man well the disguise was broken when she gave birth and then she was stoned to death but her child survived according to one of the legends so the the story itself was so gripping and the poem was so incredibly beautiful that i said could i please have the rights to this poem to do something with it. It took another 10 years, but a commission came through and uh, from the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble and Dance Alloy. At the time I lived in Pittsburgh and I was teaching at uh, the university there, the University of Pittsburgh. So I thought this is perfect. I'm going to write this piece that I've been wanting to write. And uh, I, I did, and it became a dance opera so that's how I came to know about Pope Joan. But now I'll tell, tell you that, Greg, that I'm not going to wait around for a commission. You know, I'm just going to go with what arrives in my soul. Oh, this needs to be done. Why hasn't this be, been done before? Why don't we have someone, you know, saying, well, uh, heroines have 1,000 faces too, you know, and who are they? Uh, so that's kind of behind it. Um, again, when when I started writing my opera about LSD, and this was Charlie, you may remember who Charlie Morrow was I as do. a fellow New Yorker at the time. Charlie Morrow, I never really knew him, but somehow he was the connection. I, I mean, I might have met him a couple of times. He was the connection between these two guys who were, one was a poet and one was a journalist who had written a screenplay about LSD, Albert Hoffman, Timothy Leary, and uh, all of these um, uh, players in that story. Um, and he said, and their screenplay went nowhere for 10 years. So then they decided, well, why don't we do an opera? Somebody said, why don't you do an opera with this? Charlie Morrow sent them to me. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is not an opera. This has really interesting parts to it. And why hasn't anyone ever written an opera about LSD? But, you know, so maybe I should. And I met Gerd Stern and Ed Rosenfeld, who died in exactly a year ago yesterday. Ed Rosenfeld, suddenly. Um, and I got very close to them. They are such amazing people, both of them. So we collaborated. We collaborated and we now have a libretto and I became one of the, now we have three librettists because I needed to bring experience of writing an opera libretto into the fold. Um, in this process, we have written scenes and we've had them produced. But also I realized there are no women in this story. How can we bring women into it? Laura Huxley is Aldous Huxley's wife and 
She sent him along his journey when he died with an injection of LSD. So she's at his request, by the way. I remember. She, she is, she is um, a character in the story. And then I had an epiphany I was, as I was working on the opera. LSD. Let's, pers let's personify it. And let's turn it into a soprano trio. So that it actually has legs in the opera and arms and a brain. <laughs> so it's going to be three women. And I nicknamed them Love, Sex, and Death. And my librettist collaborators really went for this idea. So that's how I brought women into the opera. And a reviewer said after some of the scenes were produced in Los Angeles that it has a feminist spirit. All right. I didn't approach this seeing the libretto for the first time or seeing the screenplay like, oh, it has to have a feminist spirit. It really was born out of the experience of working on it and of wondering how can we bring these women into it. Also, another female character is a woman named uh, Mary Pinchot, my mayor, M-E-Y-E-R, mayor, uh, who was one of JFK's last mistresses and who was actually uh, occupying herself with procuring LSD from Tim Timothy Leary. This is all true. So that she could bring it back and enlighten the Washington housewives of these powerful people. She was the ex-wife of a former uh, CIA um, um, leader, a cord mayor. So she knew all the wives, including uh, Catherine Graham. Now, a year after JFK was assassinated, Mary Mayer was shot down in cold blood on a towpath where she ran every day. Where? Why? This was in Washington on the canal, the towpath. Why did this happen? She had kept a diary, and when she died, her diary mysteriously disappeared. So she probably knew things that shouldn't be released. And she's a character in the opera. Mysteriously, you know, there have been books written about how she died, why she died, uh, people surmising this and that. It's all a very tangled story mm. when you look at it. So all of these threads come into this opera and coming back to, you know, feminist sensibility. Um, this is this is definitely a, a political opera. How could it not be, you know? And what the CIA was doing with this drug when they were all taking it, it was legal. A lot of these things are not known. They made it illegal when the counterculture got hold of it. Then suddenly, you know, you couldn't have it in the late 60s, mid to late 60s. So, Did, did you have a good experience with LSD? Well, see, now you're assuming that I took it. Oh, I, I'm not assuming, but I'm interested why you're such a, a fan of it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> most people say, most people, Greg, say, well, have you ever taken LSD? And I say to them, my answer is, 
I wouldn't even deign to write this opera unless I had. So you're a step ahead of me here. And I had a mix. I had mixed experiences. You know, I had good trips. I had bad trips. But mostly, I'll, I'll tell you that I can't imagine being who I am today had I not taken. Because you do see things and you experience things that um, are not of this world. And then having had those experiences, I feel a kinship with what Huxley wrote. He was the first person to actually write in a vision, visionary, positive way about psychedelics. That, you know, I would say, well, sure, you know, people, look, I mean, the, the, the there were people who were taking peyote. There were people who were taking ayahuasca, yes. which wasn't even known to us at that time, um, who were having positive experiences with the psychedelics. But LSD is a special case. It's, first of all, not, um, it's not a natural substance. It's a man-made substance, right? It's a man-made drug. And people can, at the time they did, and they still can, if you're not prepared for it, just, you know, look at the book that just came out about um, the experience of LSD uh, written by Michael Pollan, and he had never taken it, and his experiences were all guided. Yeah. I think, ideally, they should be guided. You know, I remember taking it at one point, and I didn't take a lot of LSD. It's not like I'm one of those people who took it hundreds of times. That's okay, too, if you can deal with For me, ex having these experiences a handful of times was enough. That's enough. I'm really not 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 um, interested in taking it again. Although um, I wouldn't be opposed to microdosing, you know. And that's what people are talking about now. Yeah, and now we we see mushrooms are becoming legal. But I can just say that at the time we didn't have guides, and I remember having an out-of-body experience in one of these uh, events. And I really did. It was, it was an out-of-body for, felt like hours. And I remember uh, being told, do not get up, do not go outside. This is how people would fall off of balconies yeah. and accidentally die. So I, I was around people at least who knew enough to say that, you know, to me. But it was just in the water, more or less. This was also a part of the uh, kind of group that I was involved with. You know, we were always experimenting and we were definitely into alternative realities, which was a surrealist way of life. You know, I think... I think the connection between psychedelics and surrealism is, is pretty, pretty sure and real. Um, but I just also found that any of those early experiences taught me something. I learned something that then could be accessed and generally, and I never did uh, LSD but the other experiences I've had 
with even just marijuana have have been ones where you're able to access parts of your brain or parts of your consciousness or parts of your imagination uh, where you can have audio hallucinations you know you can you can access something that gives you another avenue for creative expression is that fair yes and what you're saying is so true you just can't verbalize or express what it has done for you but you know it's done something you know it has forged something this is these experiences yeah i think the one thing that i can connect is a visual sound connection that was made early on in my life was then accentuated and now everything that I hear is stuff that I see and everything that I see I can get sound from. That never went away. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that makes sense to me, sure. It does heighten. Those experiences heighten sound. They heighten um, visual phenomenon. And they heighten certain things that you might have been listening to. And at the time, you know, under the influence, I was listening to things like Momente by Stockhausen. These are very close to me now, these pieces, or, or eight songs for a mad king. You could have a bad trip with that, right? Yeah, I had a bad <laughs> trip of that without taking any drugs. <laughs> Well, I love that piece because I didn't. And also, uh, Lucas Foss wrote a piece called Baroque Variations, where, uh, you know, it's it's kind of couched in, in Bach, but he does very wild things with these variations. And so those pieces, when I hear them, they bring back certain, like perfume, you know, will immediately take you back to what you were doing and where you were and what you were experiencing and who you were around. Uh, yeah, and then of course, all of the great psychedelic rock from those parts of, you know, our history. Pink Floyd is a big one. Uh, <laughs> need I say more? <laughs> no, that that's, that's a very interesting period of music. Um, and it was trying to present a visual world to people through sound. Headphones on, headphones to oblivion, right? Yeah. Or else, you know, the best system you could afford to have, the best audio system. Lights out, you know, or yeah. maybe black light posters. Uh, yeah. And still cherish those experiences because it gave me somewhere to go, you know. It gave me somewhere that was mine to go, but I could use other people's inspiration or their creation to take me there. Um, yeah, this is, this is so interesting. Can we take a minute? Sure. Okay. I want to pause because I'd like to go to the. I didn't realize how hungry I was. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had some nuts now and good to go. Okay. Um, you know, speaking of, of, of strong female figures, I was very curious about your work with Tulani Davis. She's someone that many of us became familiar with 
through her work in the jazz avant-garde and her connection to Joseph Jarman from the Art Ensemble. Uh, what was your collaboration with her like? Yeah, well, Tulani um, was recommended to me by my friend Carrie Perloff, who wanted to direct. At the time, she was the um, artistic director of Classic Stage Company, CSC in New York. And I had been working on this opera about Orpheus and Eurydice with, you know, Eurydice's point of view, which usually you don't see, or at least you, no one had addressed it at that time, with um, a poet named Edwin Honig, who um, had written this poem when his wife died. And I, I met him at uh, Yaddo, at the retreat for artists. And his poem was so moving to me. It was like, I just thought, wouldn't it be amazing to do something with it? Well, eventually, you know, it, it, it did want to become an opera, but my music was going in a direction that this man was like in his 60s and he had forged the uh, or founded the creative writing program at Brown University and he just couldn't he couldn't go with me he didn't understand the language he didn't understand the style because I was moving it in a sort of blues electronic direction and so I I did keep the I did um turn his words into art song with a, a baritone singer and some instruments. But at that time I was introduced to Talani, you know, as someone who could uh, really understand the language I was using musically. And she was, she was amazing. She's such a, you know, she, she had had experience in writing a libretto at least one at that time with her cousin, Anthony Davis. Um, I, I believe it was X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X that she had written. And so I felt very special to, you know, have her in my life and to be writing this libretto, which, which her words just lend themselves to music. It's seamless uh, what, she's, what she's able to do. She has this uncanny sensibility and I see now why Anthony has worked with her on several projects. Yeah, so it was a very positive experience. Yeah. And that piece was done uh, in um, Washington, D.C. in concert format. So it was the whole opera was produced, but it's never been staged. It was going to be staged at the a new theater that had been renovated in Washington, D.C. called the Lincoln Theater. Brand new theater and everything was in place. Everyone had been hired. And then one of the producers didn't have the funds that she said she had. And this was one of the most heartbreaking things I think I've ever been through, is to have $10,000 be the reason that something wasn't produced. So I, I do revisit that opera from time to time, and I still hope and, you know, that, that somehow, somewhere it'll see the light of day because it's, it's very potent. I hope so. That sounds like a fascinating project. 
Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also fascinated by this this something I read in your in your website about a piece that you were commissioned to write about the Oxford Dictionary. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Uh that was that was a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the Los Angeles library, the, the main library in Los Angeles, celebrate the, something and the foundation behind it, something new every year. And that year that that commission showed up, just like maybe two or three years, maybe three years ago, um, it was going to be the Oxford English Dictionary. And they wanted to... Uh, put on a, a concert where, you know, people would be performing or composers would write something that was inspired by the dictionary. I think there may have been a couple of other composers, but this was a project that, and I was given um, the instrumentation for it. So that's a situation where I had to write for two voices, male and female voice, uh, viola, guitar doubling on banjo. And <laughs> trying to think, was there another instrument? Um, I'd have to look at the score at any rate. I did so much research for this piece. How do you write something about the OED? You know? one of the giants of Western civilization. But the um, it turns out that the story of how it came to be is pretty dang fascinating. And how there were murderers who worked on it, how there were crazy people who worked on it, how you went crazy if you worked on it. <laughs> and, and how when it was being... Um, founded, it came out in these small volumes, which would then sell like hotcakes. They would sell, sell, sell. And and if they didn't sell, then, you know, it put the kibosh on how quickly it could move along. Right. So in the end, I decided to, uh, some of my research had turned up what the spines on these small volumes in the first edition would say, you know, it's like a dictionary is going to say the first word. Well, A is a word. So the first word would be A and the last word. And the last word would not be Z, but it would be a word that starts with Z. So there was a new last word that is currently the last word in the OED, and that word is Zytham. Zytham which is an old Egyptian beer. Oh. So I decided to name the piece A-Zytham. So A to Zytham. And in between, I defined, I decided to define three words based on, well, okay, uh, the Lord of the Rings writer, Tolkien, defined the word walrus. He, he worked for a year on the OED, so I liked his definition. Um, he may have defined, yes, of course he defined hobbit 
so I used those two. And there was one more word I defined, but in between all of those, it's nonsense syllables that come from the spine of these um, of these smaller volumes that were published. And that that was a lot of fun to write. And it's a kind of tour de force because the singers have to make their way through it, and then they stop at the um, they, they stop at the definitions, but they also stop. There were two ghost words. Ghost words are words that made it into the dictionary, but um, but they are not real words. <laughs> okay. One is called abacot. And the other one is now I forget, I forget what, it was. but uh, for those ghost words, I I have um, electronic files that that I created with things like Harry Parch's viola because we had a viola, so why not have Harry Parch's viola, right? Um, this was not an easy piece to write by to compose by any means. And it's a kind of, um, I would say, you know, it's a flower off to itself, off by itself, because it's the poetry, it's not really poetry, it's what is sung by the two singers. It's kind of like nonsense, a little, little Dada, you know, flavor there. Well, you're de deconstructing language, certainly fodder for, for, uh, for sound. That's true. Yeah. And in a way, I wasn't even deconstructing language because the lang the deconstruction was already, already available in, um, I had these charts where, you know, where these things were, um, kind of listed in different ways and arrayed in different ways, but they were already on the spines and they were, they were fun to sort of play with. But I'll tell you what, I never thought about until I wrote this piece, the letter A. And the letter A has so many definitions that it takes up almost half of the piece. <laughs> you know, um, I, there, there are things that you can find about the letter A, like, oh, there was a ship that was wrecked, and it turned upside down, and that's the letter A, and it's upside down. This is in the dictionary. The upside down letter A. Wow. So, I, I had no idea, you know, that I would encounter so much about the letter A. <laughs> Well, words are so fascinating. You know, I studied Latin in, in high school and, and it, it's useful to me to this moment, you know, and yeah. I love knowing how things are derived and where they came from and, and how they've transformed through use. And also just the same word from different parts of the world. My Latin teacher in high school was one of the best teachers I ever had. And I'm right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. That stayed with me. You mentioned Harry Parch a moment ago, and he's such a fascinating figure and, and of incredible interest to me as someone who forged his own way, built, you know, right down to building his own instruments and his tuning system. And 
you've been involved with with his instruments for a while now, right? Yes, ever since a new band was inviting composers to write for his instruments. And, you know, Dean, the late Dean Drummond uh, worked with Harry Parch and then had the replicas of the instruments for years in the New York area. Yeah, they and were in New Jersey, actually. They were, well, they were in Nyack, New York, mm -hmm. and then they were moved to Montclair University. Uh, and then when Dean was no longer with us, they ended up, after a lot of searching at the University of Washington in Seattle, and now I think they're back in um, storage, those instruments. So I did write for a couple of those for New Band, and they recorded those pieces, and I was allowed to bring the, um, Dean allowed me to bring the harmonic, one of the harmonic canons and the surrogate kithara to my apartment in New York, where I lived with them while I wrote the piece. It was called Southern Ephemera, and it was for those two instruments, plus cello and flute, and they all played a scale um, based on his the scale that he built these instruments on, 43 tones to the octave. So I wrote ratios for the instruments, and they were accustomed to playing. Ted Mook was the cellist, and Stephanie Starin was the flute player fantastic players uh, who could play ratios with the instruments. So yeah, I wrote easy. No, 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 no. <laughs> got to hear and, that stuff. And, and I wrote the piece thinking of tunes that were familiar to me and beloved from my childhood. Um, just like sort of like wafting through the uh, piece, you know, small, um, quotations of these tunes played in this tuning. And that's why it was called Southern Ephemera. Um, ephemera being, it's not, you know, it doesn't last. So that's what our memories, our memories go back to things that we recall from our childhood and maybe, you know, music is certainly one of those. They tended to be folk tunes like um, in the garden is a hymn, and and uh, um, you are my sunshine, you know. So that's how I became acquainted with the Parch instruments. And then when I moved to LA, that piece, that very piece, was performed by an ensemble here, uh, led by John Schneider, a guitarist, and a radio personality who had been having the instruments built to spec. So he found out about me and that piece and they programmed it. And then I told you earlier in our um, session today about the opera that I'm writing uh, focused on LSD and how it came into being um, and what it did in people's lives how it affected their lives. And I started thinking about the opera. And then one day I was driving and I thought, well, you know, an opera about LSD, I want the music to be not, I, I would love for it to sound not stable at certain times. And I had the epiphany. What if I write, what if I include some of the parch instruments with this, 
crazy ass tuning, right? And I, I knew I had written for them before. So when I drove up in my driveway, I called John Schneider right away. And I said, John, I just had this idea. What do you think about it? He didn't know I was working on the opera. So I told him and he said, oh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and that turned into, you know, at least a couple of years of work, of fundraising, grant writing, and so forth. But when we did it, when we performed it, I wrote it for an it was performed with an orchestra and six of the parch instruments in workshop, you know, in a, a production that wasn't staged, some scenes only. Then it was performed again at another place with semi-staging. These were all Los Angeles performances, one at the Annenberg Center in Beverly Hills and one at Red Cat downtown. It was done with a smaller ensemble, which included piano both times. I thought, well, how do you know something is not stable unless you contrast it with something that is? So I wanted those equal tempered instruments to be a part of the ensemble. Smart. And, you know, the parch instruments included the kithara, which is the harp-like. So I wanted a harp in my ensemble and the kithara. And then we had the diamond marimba. Um, so, of course, we have percussion. I think it may be vibes. I write, write more for vibes than marimba. Um, but I certainly have percussion in the ensemble, too. So, the, and, and then the cloud chamber bowls and the, and the bass marimba. I mean, how can you not have those, right? Classic. But I had to live with the smaller ones because each instrument has its own template its own way of notating. And of course, the chromolodeon. The chromolodeon is the most important. That is the pump organ that's tuned to 43 tones. I say most important because you can play it right away. You can just sit down and play it. And the template is you just write for it like you would write for a keyboard. But uh, the sounds, of course, are going to come out very differently sounding. And I just wrote a new scene for the opera that's going to be performed at Red Cat downtown in June called the Double Helix scene. And it's set at the Cambridge, um, the Eagle Pub in Cambridge with the singers, um, with the characters, James, uh, um, uh, Francis Crick and James Watson, who discovered DNA. Is it true that they discovered DNA or visualized a double helix while they were tripping? Well, that's why we have the scene. This is apocryphal, and it, it's only Francis Crick. But Francis Crick evidently told someone that he did see, he visualized the double helix under the influence of LSD. So, of course, we have a third person who should be... Uh, credited, and that is Rosalind Franklin. Um, these two guys, Crick and Watson, knew about her work, and they were given a photograph of some of her work and based their own final parts of their discovery on the photograph. The photograph should never have left her lap. So she is the uncredited person um, if you look up Crick and Watson on Google Image, 
often you will see three people because now, you know, we're wise to the fact that she should have also received the Nobel. Yeah. Hidden figures. Hidden figures. That's it. So anyway, for this new piece, uh, new scene, I um, the Parch Ensemble has commissioned a number of composers to write for them, but they all they gave us five minutes only, and only two instruments could. So of course, my instrument was the chromolodeon, and um, I chose because it's in a pub. No, I, I was given three. I could choose three instruments. So just the chromolodeon and a bass and clarinet. Um, again, you know, equal tempered. Yeah. So, so that's the yeah. attempt to, to try to get the traditional instruments to play in that tuning system. That's Is that not possible? I, no, it's, it's possible to have the traditional instruments play in the 43 tone to the octave. But hey, you know, when you think about practicalities right now, um, everyone has been recording um, remotely by themselves. So they hear what's being recorded and then they, I didn't know this when I wrote it. I didn't know where we would be um, in terms of, you know, lockdown or not. So I'm always thinking limited rehearsal time, limited rehearsal time. <laughs> Every composer does. Yeah. And so, no, they're not written in the, um, because the players are not accustomed to reading ratios. So they're just playing equal tempered. And that means actually, Greg, that a lot of what the chromolodeon does is clusters and things that don't accompany the singers. And, you know, um, it plays this, this incredible or pump organ plays music that, is very dramatic, but is not something that you have to coordinate the pitch uh, for other instruments with. Where can people hear this stuff, Anne? You can go to, you can, uh, people can hear it. The best place actually is to go to uh, LSD Huxley's Last Trip. It's our own website. Uh, for the opera. So there you can see all of the parts instruments. You can um, you can hear clips of some of the scenes. And there are two other places. My website will lead you to uh, some of these uh, scenes as well. And then my YouTube channel has these performances. That's important. I, I hope people will go out and, and find these links. Anne LeBaron, that's A-N-N-E-L-E-B-A-R-O-N. And AnneLeBaron.com also has a lot of your, your examples of stuff, right? Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it's new and it's fun to go there. I'm, I'm really happy with it. You know how hard it is to do these websites to re it, it renovate is, them and excellent website really clear really vibrant and I, I highly recommend that to people thank you thank you greg and your musicality always just blows my mind and your range of expression is just so beautiful and, and inclusive and i never know what's going to happen next and i like that feeling
Well, I never know either. <laughs> That's the whole thing about we come back to th th something that you brought up is being open, you know, just being I mean, you read about it. People say, well, I'm like a sponge when I'm in this kind of mode. And there's so much truth to that. It's it's like when I just described writing Southern Ephemera for uh, Dean Drummond's group and Stephanie Sterren's new band. At the time, I, I was in sponge mode and I was looking at a magazine and I saw the word ephemera. And that gave me the idea for the piece. So... Yeah, it's a kind of mindset, right? And you just don't know what is going to cross your path. No, it's another thing that I love about it. I mean, you can be spontaneous and compose because you're 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 excited at that moment and it's something that fascinates you and maybe it's not even at that moment, maybe it's taken years to feed in and finally something pops out, but I mean, I like to say that I I I can't even get to all the ideas. There's just, there's not enough time. There's not enough resources, but you keep consuming, you know? Um, and then I listen to composers. I listen to your work. I listen to composers that I have neglected, you know, um, Morton Feldman is someone that I'm really getting into now. Even so much Stockhausen that you can't get to finally now everything's available on, on Spotify, you know? Um, but I, I want to thank you because you have really made your own thing happen on so many levels. And it's very inspiring to me. And just uh, the fact that we've we've made music together, you know, means a lot to me because I think of you as a, a serious innovator. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Greg. And it's so special to have you in my orbit and to have this connection with you and even to have this excuse to just you know, hang out and chat with one another. Um, you're a, a really important person in my history. And I value your thoughts, your input. We've kind of gone along parallel paths in many ways. Uh, so that to me is very special, our friendship and our bond. So I feel I the think, same way. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, please check out Anne's music, check out her website, and uh, we'll have it listed here at the end. Uh, thank you for listening, and, and please like and subscribe so we can keep doing what we're doing here. And uh, Anne LeBaron, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. It's been a great pleasure. Okay. See everybody next time. <laughs>